Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm really excited today because we are actually going to be talking all about friends as kind of like this peak millennial show. I've been thinking a lot about it since Matthew Perry died last week, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to dig into the show to also talk about addiction. You know, I read his memoir and I relate to it not just in having an addiction, but I also feel like the show Friends and Chandler as a character, I really love because it was Friends was like my friends during my addiction. And it was something that was really comforting for me. It was probably the first show ever that I would rewatch over and over again. So I'm going to dive into a bit of that. And I also want to use it as an opportunity to talk about parasocial relationships, celebrity death, why we mourn celebrities that die, and kind of push back against this narrative that people who like celebrities or are interested in pop culture are not as smart or that it's dumb to care about a celebrity and offer a different perspective. So let's get into it. You're listening to the Recoveredish Podcast. I'm your host, licensed therapist, Amanda E. White. Quick thing before we get into the episode, I share briefly about some suicidal intentions. So if that is not good for you to hear, please skip the first 10 to 15 minutes of the episode. So Matthew Perry died last week. And with that news, it just has me thinking so much about, I know that he said ironically that he doesn't want to be remembered for friends first. He wants to be remembered for helping people. But I think the irony is that he helped a lot of people actually through his character on Friends. At least that's how I feel. It's also what I've heard a lot of people echo. And I think that potentially was lost on him based on some of the interviews that he gave. I think it's incredible the work he did to help people. But I wonder what he would think if he knew that shows like Friends, comfort shows, can also help people with their mental health. For me personally, when I think of my addiction, I think of Friends. I was obsessed with the show the first time I saw it, which was in middle school. I often was not allowed to watch it. I had to go sneak to my friend's house. I remember for a gift, I was given some of the DVDs and I had season four and then season eight. And those were the ones that I know the best. I mean, now I know them all for sure, but I would watch those over and over again compulsively. And eventually I saved up my money. I went to Chinatown <laughs> in New York and I spent all my money before I went to college on counterfeits and I would watch them in college. And in the height of my addiction, I was just continuously watching Friends over and over again on my computer that had a disk drive back then. It was a source of comfort for me. And in some ways at my lowest low, when I was really suicidal, I feel like it kept me alive. It gave me hope for that life would get better and that it would be possible for me to have a group of friends like that. I lost all of my friends in college. I have talked about this a lot on the podcast, but I was a terrible friend. It's funny. I was actually having – I was talking to someone in an interview, and she was very confused when I said that, when I said I was a terrible friend. And she was like, what do you mean? Why? Like it was like she was confused why I was admitting this to her. And I think she thought that I meant like other people were bad friends to me. And I was like, no, no. I was a terrible friend in my addiction. I fully own that. 
And I relate to Matthew Perry a lot in he was extremely raw and vulnerable about all the things he did, about the ways he mistreated people in his book. And it takes a lot of courage, I think, to do that. But anyway, I was a terrible friend. I would do things like leave the stove on, um, get into huge fights with people when I was out drinking. I had a night where I was running around the house telling my friends, threatening to commit suicide. So sorry we're starting the podcast this deep today, but that was the type of friend that I was. So it's not surprising that at the end of college, they didn't really want much to do with me and they were very fed up with me. I ate people's food. I would lie about it. My addiction was bad. And the one comfort I had was holding up in my bedroom and watching reruns of Friends over and over again. Often that was accompanied by a giant bowl of cereal and drinking and binging and purging in some way. But having friends on the background was my companion through the lowest lows of my addiction. Even after I graduated and I moved into an apartment, I still continued to watch friends compulsively. And I often still put it on the background, not quite as much. I've kind of shifted to the office because the laugh tracks ban. It's hard to fall asleep to a laugh track, but Friends really narrated and was in the background of my whole life. And I think unlike a lot of other shows too, I read an article that said that Friends has kind of endured because it's peak millennial, because it represented this really specific point in time where we were optimistic in the 90s, like the Cold War had ended. People really thought – I mean, I remember reading history textbooks, and I don't know what history textbooks look like nowadays, so feel free to tell me I'm wrong. But I remember reading history textbooks, and it was like present day in the 90s, right? And it was like, okay, the Cold War's over. All the world wars are over. Women have rights. The civil rights movement, everything is great going forward now. We have achieved equality, which is obviously not the case. And if you rewatch Friends, it is very clear that there are quite a few problematic things about it. It is extremely white. It makes fun of fat people. It is homophobic. It's not practical in the way that people couldn't live that way in an apartment in New York City. And people don't stay friends like that forever. People don't stay friends with their exes and things like that. And those people couldn't have afforded <laughs> where they lived and the lifestyles they lived with the jobs they had. But I digress. It captured this unique moment. It's one of the best sitcoms ever, I think, because you really had this pervasive sense that these were good people. And as long as they did right by each other, everything in their life would be okay and everything would work out. No matter what things happened to them, it all seemed to kind of happen for the best. Ross and Rachel breaking up. At the end, they got back together and it was the right thing and it was the right timing. Monica and Richard breaking up. It led her to Chandler, which is who she truly meant to be with. They couldn't have children, but they adopted two beautiful kids. Everything just really kind of worked out. Phoebe, who didn't know if she wanted to get married, was this oddball, you know, finds this great new relationship and she's happy. And I think that Friends did a really good job of feeling like they were really our friends. I saw an interesting article too that said that most other shows at the time were about families. That's what sitcoms were about. Or they were like teen drama shows, you know, the OC, things like that. This was about young people in their 20s. And that is the life that I thought I would have in my 20s. And what was also really powerful for me about Friends is 
when I look back at other shows, it's one of the only shows, though, that also doesn't revolve around getting drunk. There's very little drinking in the show. They hang out at a coffee house, not a bar. So that is one thing that I I really appreciate about it. And I think the show really hinges on their true, deep relationships with each other. But I wanted that. And I thought that that was something that was possible and probable. I think that Friends just captures this really specific moment. It made you believe that it was possible to have true good friends. And when you were lonely, because of the genius of the way the characters are written, because of the way it was a truly ensemble show where obviously people had their favorites, but most people really loved all of the friends and they felt connected to them. It felt like they were your friends, especially for 10 years. They took us on such a journey. And even whether you don't watch friends or like friends, I just want to say that I think it's also valid and important if you feel emotionally connected to characters in TV shows. I hate the rhetoric that TV is like the lowest form of doing anything. There was a lot of TV shame in my house growing up, and I think even with reality TV or sitcoms or people who watch the same shows over and over again, there's an idea sometimes that that makes you dumb or boring or basic, and I think that it is perfectly valid to feel comfort from watching shows. They've actually done studies, and re-watching the same shows over and over again is something that a lot of times people do that have anxiety. Um, because it is something that feels predictable. And I have really seen this play out more and more in my life. When the world is hard, when life is unpredictable, sometimes the best thing we can do is turn on a TV show and we can predictably know exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, when the lines are going to happen. And there's something also to be said for a sitcom that always has, right, there are longer character journeys, but pretty much every episode has a problem that the characters are trying to solve and it gets wrapped up nicely at the end. And you can feel good knowing that the characters are okay. And life isn't like that. It's not predictable. It's hard. People leave. People die. And sometimes I think we disregard the fact that having, even if they're characters, even if they're parasocial, people in your life night after night or day after day when you're re-watching shows or even following celebrities, that's what leads me into this whole idea about celebrities, it is okay to have parasocial relationships with people. Obviously, yes, I'm not condoning that people go stalk Taylor Swift. I'm not saying that it's okay for people to put themselves or celebrities in danger. You just heard me rant for 30 minutes last week with Sam about how the media really, really messed up Britney Spears and how I am against that. But especially when it comes to art, which is what TV is, by the way. People really love to forget that and act like it's just stupid and mindless. It is an art form. And never did I believe that more than during the pandemic when we all turned to TV and music and podcasts even as this form of friendship and connection and feeling like we can escape ourselves and go into a different place. Like reading is obviously amazing too. I'm a big reader. But I think that there is this idea sometimes in the media that people who read are far superior to people who watch TV. And while yes, you probably learn more if you're reading lots of nonfiction books compared to rewatching Friends over and over again, there is a psychological comfort component of watching the same TV shows or escaping into a different world 
through TV or through a movie. And I'm just very over all of the shaming about it. Life is hard enough without everyone shaming people for watching TV. So I'm just saying that because if you like TV, if you love Friends, if you rewatch the same shows over and over again, that's okay. And even more importantly, there are actually research studies out that show some of these positive benefits. So I already talked about one of them, which is rewatching the same shows over and over again can give you a sense of predictability, a sense of safety, especially if you have anxiety. So another thing that rewatching the same TV shows over and over again can do is it can help you tap into your emotions. Sometimes it is really hard for us to cry or to feel connected to an emotion. We can spend so much time burying them down that it's difficult to get in touch with them. But if you watch a show that's really emotional, it can allow you to tap into that emotion. Like This Is Us is such an intensely feeling emotional show. I've actually had so many therapy sessions with clients who have talked about a particular part of that show or an episode of it. And a lot of times what I've heard people say, and I've done this myself, is when you are struggling to tap into an emotion, watching that show or any show like it can help you access those deeper emotions sometimes. Or if you're trying to feel joyful or happy, like think about if you're trying to get into the holiday spirit, how watching holiday movies or listening to holiday music can help you feel more festive. Also, if you have memories of watching these shows or watching this movie with your family, with friends, if you have positive memories associated with it, it can feel really good to tap back into that. It can feel comfortable and remind you of good times. So I hope some of this research and these explanations that I'm sharing help you feel a little bit better if you do rewatch the same shows over and over again. I think for millennials, Friends was also really influential to us because a lot of us grew up watching these 20-year-olds when we were younger than them. So they almost served as this older brother, older sister, older friend sort of relationship where they were showing you what it would be like to be an adult. As I'm saying this, I think about the episode where they cut up Rachel's credit cards and Monica hugs her and says, welcome to the real world. It sucks. You're going to love it. And I had always thought that that would be what my life would look like, that I would grow up, I would live with best friends, I would have best friends across the hallway, they would be like my second family. And for a very short window of my life after I got into recovery, I did live close to friends and quickly, you know, we grew up, we got married, we moved away and it's still something sometimes I mourn. There's a magic sometimes about being in your 20s and spending so much time with your friends. And that was really to me why the ending of Friends was also so perfect with really capturing what happens with a group of friends. Obviously, most people are not so close that they live together and they spend all of their time together like they did in the show. But people do have a period of time in their 20s where you spend a lot of time with your friends and in college and then people get married, they have kids, they move, they go off, and you can still keep in touch with them, but there is sort of a magic about that time in your life. And I read this really great quote from an article that I'll link that I think really captures it. The nostalgia of its premise is also attractive to millennials in particular, for whom the show is much more than a comforter of their youth, but a, a catnip snapshot of what life would be like if we really could live with our friends. As we embody that stage in life where pals pair off, have kids, and move away, it can be a wrenching signifier of change. The show exists as a sadly unrealistic freeze frame, a millennial neverland, where no one really grows old, moves on, and where all your friends are always just across the hall. 
So if you are mourning the loss of Matthew Perry or you are confused why this hits hard or any celebrity death hits hard, it is not because you're dumb. It's not because you're stupid. There isn't anything wrong with you. It is normal to have a parasocial relationship and it's normal to mourn someone who meant something to you even if you didn't have a relationship with them because you did have a relationship with them. It was just one-sided, but you still can get comfort and joy and connection from relationships that are one-sided. So if you are grieving his death, I want to give you a couple tips. Firstly, let yourself feel your feelings. Notice where this feels in your body. Notice if you're feeling grief. It is so easy in these instances to shame yourself or judge yourself for feeling the way you're feeling. And instead, what I really encourage you to do is get curious, lean into those emotions because the judgment is just going to take you out of it and make it harder for you to process what's going on. Give yourself space to process it. Just like any emotion, it starts as a physiological sensation in your body and you're going to want to engage your body in some way to move through it, whether that's walking, journaling, talking to someone, stretching, going outside, engage in some sort of mindfulness to notice how you're feeling and also give the emotion space to work through your body so you can release it. I also want to say that it is okay to be naturally curious. I think there is, especially with suicide or big celebrity deaths that are shocking, people get very mad at people on the internet and say, you shouldn't feel curious. Like, what's wrong with you? They died. You don't need to know any details. And yes, I'm not advocating for you should stalk Matthew Berry's family or say something mean to someone in real life when they didn't list a cause of death or do anything like that. Because yes, people's families do not owe us anything when they're going through grief and asking why someone died is not appropriate, nor is it helpful. But if you are just naturally curious and you find yourself interested in it, that is also okay. I think there is something really scary about death that makes people feel like they need to understand exactly what happened, why someone died, so then they feel like they're safe from it happening to them or it happening to someone else. And that false sense of safety, which is false because we all can die for any reason at any time, can feel like closure and feel like then we don't have to mourn something because it's not going to happen to us or our family. Often death does bring up thoughts about ourselves. We put ourselves in that position. We say, oh my God, what is my funeral going to look like? Or how am I going to ever live without this person in my life? Or what would my friends say? What would my family say? It brings us to a lot of these kind of existential questions, which naturally is okay and can be even helpful to lean into. If you think about someone dying and you think about your own death and you feel like you're not living the life that you want to live, it can be an important prompt to start identifying your values and living a life that is in alignment with them. But you also don't need to shame yourself for feeling sad, for feeling curious, for feeling scared, or any other emotion that's coming up around this. If you are hearing me talk about emotions and procrastination and distraction, this may be a sign that you could use some extra support with your mental health. My therapy practice, Therapy for Women Center, has therapists across the country in 27 states, and we also have three local offices in the Philadelphia area. Right now is a really great time to get started on therapy. Typically, we start to have a huge jump and a wait list in January, so now is the time to get in and schedule your first appointment. 
reach out to us at therapyforwomencenter.com. So a lot of you reached out to me and just expressed that you did feel really sad about his death or you have felt sad about other celebrities' deaths in the past and you wanted to know why that was and what some of my tips were. So I'm going to get into questions at the end of the episode, but right now I just want to talk a little bit about the pros and cons of parasocial relationships. So we're all on the same page. A parasocial relationship is essentially an attachment or a connection with someone who you don't know. It's one-sided. So often it happens with celebrities, but it can also be fictional characters, Chandler Bing on the show Friends, or if you play video games, you could be emotionally attached to that character, film, TV, even books. I think a lot of us probably who are millennials had an attachment to Harry Potter growing up, but often we're talking about celebrities, people in the media, or influencers too. One of the best things about parasocial relationships is they can actually fill an emotional connection for us. People can actually feel like our friends and they can feel like a companion, whether that is a real person who we are watching live their life. Unfortunately, sometimes that looks like through paparazzi, which is one of, of course, the downsides of parasocial relationships, but also just through influencers, through watching people, you know, live their lives on social media. It's why we root for people. You know, we celebrate when they have accomplishments. We mourn with them when they're struggling. We feel an emotional connection to them, even if it's one-sided. So it can be a character that kind of lives and has an end, or it's why you can feel sad at the end of a show, or it can be someone who's a real person, but you just don't have a two-sided relationship with them. You just watch them from afar. But you can still get emotional connection from that, especially people who maybe they live in a nursing home or maybe they don't have a lot of friends. Maybe they were like me and they were in their addiction or struggling with their mental health or people who have disabilities or they're immunocompromised. They don't have access to the same level of friendship or people in their life than other people. Parasocial relationships can actually really be supportive. This is not not to say that parasocial relationships should replace friends. It's not to say that we don't need other people, but it can definitely be something that also bolsters connection, makes you feel less alone, and it does come with not having to worry as much about risks. I think that's why we loved Friends so much or we can love these TV shows because we can watch people fight or go through struggles and they always come back together at the end typically. We don't have to worry about being hurt when we're watching a character enter a new relationship. We can live vicariously through these characters and this art and we don't have to actually, while we can feel emotionally impacted by it, we aren't actually at risk for being hurt or getting into a difficult situation or getting rejected or any of the things that can come from the very messy realities of being in a friendship or any sort of relationship. If you felt really isolated growing up, parasocial relationships can really provide you with a sense of belonging and comfort. I think it's why a lot of us relate to certain artists' music because when they are talking about deep things that they've been through, they're sharing their heart with us, we feel connected. We feel less alone when we know someone else has experienced the same things that we have. These relationships can also be a source of escapism. And that's not always necessarily a bad thing. I often talk with clients about how not only do you not always need to 24-7 be present with your emotions, it's also not possible. If you are at work and you feel a strong emotion come up, it is not possible or advisable to interrupt a meeting and be like, I got to go tend to my emotions. I got to go back to my office and cry for a bit. 
it's just not always possible or appropriate. Like when I'm giving my daughter a bath, if I'm feeling stressed out by her, if I'm feeling angry because she won't stop crying, I can't just be like, hold on, girl. I'm going to go take care of my feelings and come back. I have to push through it. I It's dangerous to leave her alone. So it's not always possible for us to deal with our emotions right there. So this is where also remembering distraction can be a healthy coping skill. This doesn't mean we should never deal with our emotions. Distraction is when you purposely, for a short period of time, divert your attention, your mind, your brain, your thoughts onto something. You try not to feel your emotions for a period of time because you don't have the space and the time to allow them to come up fully, for example. Avoidance is purposely stuffing something down, never wanting to deal with it, and thinking you never really have to deal with it. I like to say it's like there's emotional procrastination that sometimes happen where we keep kicking the can down the road. We keep ignoring and avoiding our feelings, not for a short period of time, but because we don't want to face them. And the more we do this, the harder it can get. So escapism can be a very effective form of distraction. Human beings are not designed to be in a perpetual state of horror all the time. So we naturally seek things out to feel better, to escape, to get some relief from our mind and what's going on. This isn't naturally a bad thing. It becomes an issue when you can't live in reality anymore or when you are avoiding things so much that it becomes a habit and your anxiety gets worse from avoiding it, which is what happens with avoidance over time. So I think that is where escapism can get a bad reputation. We think of people who hold themselves up and never interact with people who won't leave their house, who cut themselves off from the world and isolate themselves essentially, who skip events and work and family functions and things that are important to them to escape. And that's not what I'm talking about. Some escapism is good. That is what art and entertainment is for. And having entertainment is also not a bad thing. Humans, again, are meant to have sources of entertainment, to have sources of joy. Even if they are going through grief or very difficult things, it is important and normal for our brains to pop out of that emotion sometimes and have a little reprieve and have a little bit of a break. A very common thing I think that is related to this is sometimes when I'm working with clients who are struggling with grief, they feel guilty if they have moments of laughter or they feel like they've forgotten their loved one if they have a moment where they're feeling temporarily a little bit better. And I just want to really normalize that whether it's grief you're talking about in this case or just a big life event, something awful happening. Sometimes you know you wake up in the morning and you aren't immediately thinking of what happened and you almost forget and then you feel bad that you forgot. That is a normal thing that your brain is doing. It has no bearing on how much you cared about that person or how much you're struggling. It is a normal thing. Okay, but I would be remiss if I didn't include some of the drawbacks of parasocial relationships. Obviously, the first most obvious drawback on parasocial relationships is if it is negatively impacting your life, if you feel like you can't stop watching certain content, it's preventing you from being in close relationships with people. It's preventing you from going to work, having a productive life, doing the things you want to do, or you're getting so overly emotionally invested in a celebrity or a person's life that you feel like you can't live your own. This is a time to examine that 
take a step back, and maybe even seek therapy if that's something that you feel like you could use some support with. If our entire identity becomes about someone else, it can make our self-esteem very labile, very up and down. Because if my complete sense of self-esteem, if who I know myself to be is completely dependent on Taylor Swift's, I'm just going to use her as an example, her relationship, if I only feel like I can be in my own relationship, if she is in a romantic relationship, that is going to have a very negative impact on my life, obviously. Your favorite celebrity influencer or public figure, they are separate from you. They may do things that disappoint you. You don't fully know who they are. So when we put them up on this pedestal or we assume they are exactly like us, we are shocked and confused when they do something that isn't in perfect alignment with our values. And I think that's something really important to check, especially in this age of influencing and how we have a lot more access to people's lives on social media. So there are some negative consequences for individuals who are very interested in parasocial relationships, but I think an even bigger problem potentially is the negative impacts on that person who is a celebrity, is a public figure, who is dealing with some of the impacts of their life being public and someone having that parasocial relationship with them. Obviously, if we look at like Britney Spears or the media or the paparazzi complex, that is fueled by our interest in celebrity. And that is one of the great things I think about social media is it's given celebrities a platform themselves where they can give us things directly to us versus going through traditional media. But parasocial relationships can fuel people needing security, people being hounded all the time. That is not good for those individuals' mental health. And in some ways, it can also be dangerous if we think about car chases that happen. On a smaller scale, I think part of the issue with influencers and parasocial relationships is when we only see a small portion of someone's life that they choose to show us, we tend to imagine them as a three-dimensional person. We tend to think and plug in the holes where we don't see them or what they don't show us to something that is in alignment with us and what we like and what we care about because we want to be like them. We already connect with them and we assume we know exactly who they are based on a small portion of what they've shown us. People can often put people on pedestals. So I think it's also really important as we're having this conversation to remember that people are human, they're flawed. I have never met someone in all my years as a therapist who did not have a reason for doing what they were doing. Most people, if you fully learn who they are and you see their whole three-dimensional self, you understand them on a different level. And I love the Brene Brown quote that is, it's hard to hate someone up close. But social media is not up close. It is a small sliver of someone. And as a result, it is easy to put people on pedestals and it dehumanizes people when we put people on pedestals, when we act like they are perfect or they are evolved or they'll never make a mistake or do anything wrong. It's dehumanizing and it can set not only ourselves up for disappointment when we're doing that or maybe unhealthily kind of worship someone who is just showing up and sharing parts of their lives and cannot safely share 100% of their life ever. It's just not possible on social media. All right. Now that we've gotten through all of that, I am excited to answer a couple questions. So some of you all emailed me and I'm going to get to those, but I also have a great question from a listener that I'm going to start with. Hey, Amanda. 
Thanks so much for doing an episode on Friends. I love Matthew Perry, and I feel so stupid that I'm sad over his death. Like, I don't deserve to grieve because I didn't actually know him. Does that make sense? Any tips to work through this would be helpful. Thank you. I love this question. I think this question or this feeling about grief is really common. There is often an undertone with grief of, I don't deserve to feel this way. And what's interesting about that is even people who were really close to people who died often feel that way as well. If they were just a friend, they feel like, well, I wasn't their family or if they're a family member, if they're not a close family member, often they feel like, well, I can't be this upset. I need to be there to support the other people. And it kind of is this idea of the sadness Olympics or the grief Olympics where certain people deserve, quote unquote, to feel more grief than other people because of their proximity. And it is though there is only a pool of sadness and we are only each allowed to feel a small part of that whole puzzle rather than the reality, which is that we all are entitled to feel however much grief we feel. And you feeling grief doesn't diminish someone else feeling grief. I also think what goes along with your question is sometimes in our culture, we have this belief that we should get over something within a certain period of time or how we feel should be proportional to the closeness of the relationship or length of the relationship. For example, often people will come to me in therapy and say, why am I struggling so much with getting over this relationship with someone? I was only with them for a few months. What's wrong with me? I should calculate it by doing that math where it's like I should only feel sad for half the time that we were together. The truth is when we grieve, whether it is someone who has died or we just grieve the end of a relationship, a friendship, a partner, whatever, there is no time limit to it. There is no calculation that we will be able to say, after this amount of time, you will feel better. Unfortunately, our emotions are not that logical and they don't work that way. But what I can say is not allowing yourself to feel grief when you do will make it harder for you to work through that emotion. Please do not feel stupid. As I went through in this episode, friends meant a lot to a lot of people. And even though you never met Matthew Perry, that doesn't mean that you didn't have a relationship with him. He may not have known you, but to be very on the nose right now and quote friends, he was always there for you. And that was really the beauty of Friends, where we were able to have this relationship that was really special with these characters. And they were, in some senses, coming into our living rooms, coming into our bedrooms, sitting with us during difficult times. There were over 200 episodes of Friends. It lasted 10 years. It is still one of the most popular sitcoms of all time. So, of course, it makes sense that you feel sad about the death of someone who you have probably spent hours with. And I really hope with the words I've shared, you can give yourself some compassion and recognize that there's absolutely nothing wrong with the grief that you feel. It's hard when we get stuck in the cycle of beating ourselves up because we feel stupid or we feel like we deserve how we're feeling. But I want you to remember that this judgment of the grief that you're having is preventing you from processing and moving through this grief. So I really hope you can take some time to allow yourself to feel this grief, let it come up so you can work through it. And honestly, you may have bouts of grief that keep coming back up because 
friends may come back on or you may see something pop up on social media or you may want to watch friends again and feel sad. As I'm recording this on Wednesday night, I saw Jennifer Aniston post today and David Schwimmer and it was really heartbreaking to watch some of the words that they shared and I had a new wave of grief that came up. That is what's so hard about grief is it comes in waves and it's unpredictable. So I hope you can give yourself grace to ride through this and how you feel is valid even if he didn't know you personally. Another question I got was that a lot of you all fall asleep watching Friends or fall asleep watching other TV shows. And as you were explaining this to me, you had this undertone that this is bad or you absolutely need to stop, or it sounded like some of you had shame about this. And I just wanted to talk about this for a moment. If you have a lot of anxiety when you're trying to fall asleep, which I tend to fall into as someone who has had really erratic sleep, has always been a bad sleeper, had insomnia that permanently makes it hard to sleep sometimes. Yes, obviously having a sleep hygiene and a routine is great, but if falling asleep to a TV show helps you fall asleep, eliminate some of that anxiety at the end of the day, do it. You're not hurting anyone. You're not ruining yourself up for sleep. At the end of the day, sleep is sleep, and getting more sleep is better than tossing and turning and feeling anxious and not sleeping well. So yes, maybe it's a goal for you because you find that you sleep better when you're not watching TV, then great. Look at that. You can start to try to do some different things like creating a sleep routine, taking melatonin, journaling, reading before bed. I do this very strange thing that works very well for me, which is I read boring books before I fall asleep. So I purposely will read a book about like the history of skiing. I'm not kidding. I read a I read a book last year that was the history of skiing. I've also read books like the history of Hawaii and the history of figure skating. History books are good because if I read regular nonfiction, I go into work mode and I try to come up with content and I try I think about it too much and my brain starts to spin and it's it's too hard. Or if I'm trying to read fiction, I get too excited and interested in it and then I can't sleep. So history books are really good for me because then I don't have to worry because it's already happened and there's nothing for me to do. So there you go. There's a fun little sleeping tip for you. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, if you have questions, I love answering your questions. That's one of my absolute favorite parts of doing the show. Please call in. The podcast number is 813-444-8683. So yeah, call me. You can also send me a DM. I would love to connect with you on Instagram. My handle is at Therapy for Women. I have some fun episodes coming up. I'm going to be doing a whole holiday survival guide episode. Um, I'm still working on talking about my experience as a parent and my birth story. It's a little harder to get through, but I'm always open to your ideas. I really love creating content that you all want to listen to. And as always, I am just so, so grateful for you to be here. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. To suggest an episode topic or support my work, visit amandaewhite.com. If you're interested in getting therapy from my practice, visit therapyforwomencenter.com. We're based in Philadelphia, but we have therapists serving 27 states across the country. 